Thank you, Pastor Aaron. If you open your Bible in the middle at random, you are more than likely to turn it to Psalm 119, the longest of the Psalms. Please turn with me in the Word of God to Psalm 119. This psalm is obviously organized according to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And I would like to expound the psalm as a whole, bold as that may seem, but I would like for us to read three, uh, three sections for a focused consideration this morning. Let's begin in section Gimel, which begins in verse 17. We'll read three different sections of eight verses each. Hear the word of of the Lord. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Let's turn then to section Kaf, beginning in verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Last but not least, toward the end, Sheen. Sheen, beginning in verse 161, which is the same as the Hebrew letter Sheen. 161, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Thus far in the reading of God's holy word. Let's bow our hearts together and ask his blessing on the exposition of his word. Shall we? Let's pray together. Great God and almighty Father, we join our hearts with the heart of the psalmist who prayed that you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from 
your law. Show us, we pray, the beauties and the delights of your word, which show us Christ. Show us his beauties, we ask, for our good and for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Dear congregation, well-loved by our Lord Jesus Christ, the Psalms are a gift to you from your loving Lord. The Psalms are a gift from your loving Lord. The Lord Jesus said to his followers after he had been raised from the dead in Luke chapter 24, he said, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled, Luke 24, 44. Here Jesus is using shorthand to talk about what we call the Old Testament. The Jews call this the Tanakh, which is, uh, it means that Torah, the Ketuvim, Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, T-N-K. The Torah is the law of Moses, that is the five books of the Pentateuch. The Nevi'im are the prophets, and the Ketuvim are the writings, of which the most prominent book is this book, the Psalm, the Psalms. <clears throat> the Psalms, of course, They speak of Christ in direct prophecy. The Psalms are the most quoted of Old Testament books in the New Testament. But the Psalms also speak of Christ in a different way. They set up expectations. They give patterns. And Christ is the one who fulfills those patterns. You can have a meaningful life by turning to the word of God, so the psalmist tells us. You can have a, uh, a place to rest in the midst of all the confusion of this world, so the psalmist tells us. You can have consolation and comfort in the midst of the troubles that are afflicting you at this point in your life, so the psalmist tells us. Because the psalms point us to Christ, who is the great solution to our deepest needs. So this Psalm 119 I'm fool enough to try the whole thing at one shot. This Psalm 119 is, is a, an invitation to you to enter into the experience of the psalmist. If you will attend to what he has to teach us, he invites you to, uh, to feel and to experience the joy that he has found, the satisfaction and the comfort that he has found in the word of God. That's the invitation this morning. Obviously, Psalm 119 is a poem. All the Psalms are poems. And it's highly structured. Now, with us Americans, I dare say, poetry has fallen on rather hard times. I won't do it. I won't do it. But if I ask you to raise your hand if you've read any poetry in the, outside of the Bible, if you've read any poetry in the last three weeks. Oh, gee, don't raise your hands. But anyway... Poetry is, I dare say, maybe not in this congregation, praise the Lord, uh, but has fallen on hard times. However, in the ancient Near East, where the, which gives us the Bible, the, if something was worth remembering, it was worth putting into poetry. And that's really all, the case in all uh, ancient peoples. In our own Anglo-Saxon uh, culture, speaking of English and the beginnings of English, Beowulf, the beginnings of English, is a poem. Going back to Latin literature, the Aeneid is a poem. Going back in Greek literature, the, uh, the Odyssey 
the Iliad, these are poems. Going back in Mesopotamian literature, the Epic of Gilgamesh, these are poems. The Bible itself, at least one-third, maybe one-half of the Bible, is poetry. So most of the prophets are poems as well. So it, it's, if it's important, it's worth putting into poetry. Now, we have something of a bias about that. Why not be straightforward? And isn't poetry rather constricted? This, this, uh, this poem is obviously very constricted. How is it constricted? It's an acronym. It's the ABC poem. So the first eight verses are begin with Aleph, Aleph, Aleph. The next one begins with Beit, 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 etc. Right? And you may not have noticed, but the, many of the uh, psalms are this way. Psalm 9, 10, Psalm 25 is an acronym, Psalm 34, 37, 111, 112, 145. These are acronyms. Uh, excuse me, acrostics, not acronyms. Um, and the, so is a good bit of uh, lamentations. And interestingly enough, so is Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is actually a, uh, an acronym. Now, that explains perhaps why this psalm is not quite as logically, logical and flowing as Paul's letters. Paul is very logical. He starts you here and he takes you here. We, in Psalm 119, we have kind of jumping around uh, a little bit, even in, in, in uh, uh, Proverbs 31, it's the same kind of thing. So we think maybe that uh, poetry is too constrained and it doesn't allow us to uh, express emotion, but isn't the opposite the case? It's like a garden hose, right? The more you crank down on it, the farther it goes. Right? Same with poetry. You can actually have more feeling in more constricted words. So a haiku or a love sonnet can be very powerful in the emotion that it expresses. And here, when you have uh, the whole alphabet, what sense does it give you when you come to the end of Psalm 119? It's like, no stone has been unturned. Everything that can be said about Scripture has been said. We come to a beautiful whole, and it's very emotional. He's taking a delight. There's a lot of uh, feeling in this, particular, uh, in this particular psalm. You'll notice that each of these sections has eight verses. It seems to me that each, verse, each section has eight verses because the, uh, the psalmist is using eight different uh, words talk about the same thing. <clears throat> what words does he use? He talks about the laws, the commandments, the testimonies, the precepts, the statutes, the rules, the judgments, the words. Now, is, is he talking about different things? The rules are over here. The laws are over here. No. He's talking about one thing. This is God's word as we have it, which we call the Old Testament. He's delighting in the Old Testament. Those of you that were here in the uh, during the Sunday school uh, hour, we talked about the important, the billion and a half people in the world that don't have access to the Old Testament. So as we go through this, please realize, here is the psalmist delighting precisely in that part of the Word of God that a lot of our brothers and sisters throughout the world don't have access to and want. They want the, the full Word of God, even though they don't have it. And now, for for us who have the New Testament, such as us English speakers, how much blessed are we? We not only have what the psalmist is rejoicing in, we have even the, the clearer revelation of the New Testament. Isn't that wonderful? It gives us, we can, we can take this psalm and put it on steroids, speaking to ourselves, because we have the fuller picture, the clarity of the Word of God, which shows us Christ 
uh, in an even more clear light. There's a lot here in this psalm, and we only have a short amount of time, so I'll only be able to pluck a, a few strings here. I'd like to pluck five strings, uh, each in the minor chord and in the major chord, if I may. What I mean by that is I'd like for us to think about the background, a little bit about the, the sufferings, the difficulties that's behind the psalm. If you, if you ask that question, you'll, you'll see it come out very clearly. Uh, what he's going through, his troubles, and then what he appreciates about the Word of God uh, and, and the kind of the glories and delights that he finds in the Word of God. So we'll consider that under five general uh, subjects. Uh, think of this as, it's like a tapestry. We're going we're gonna to follow one of the, the, the gold uh, filigree uh, lines through the, through the tapestry, and we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll draw out those lines. Please keep your Bibles open. I'll be jumping around. Uh, in various places. If you don't have the Bible open, I would encourage you to do so. I'll be quoting even little sections of, of various verses, and you know, I think you'll find it helpful to have that uh, in front of you. First thing I'd like to uh, highlight from this passage is that in the Word of God, we find light for our darkness. We find light for our darkness. The most famous line from this psalm is 105, which Amy Grant has made, if you're over 40, you might remember, Amy Grant uh, made famous in her song, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. <clears throat> For the psalmist, the word of God defines what is true. We live in a world that no longer believes in truth. We live in a cynical age. Our Western world became modernist over the past 250 years, we convinced ourselves that we can find out what is true based on our own human reasoning and based on our own limited scientific capacities. That will solve all of our questions. And we tried that for 150 years or so, and now in our postmodern period in the late 20th century, it has failed. Everyone realizes that's failed. You can't get to universal values and universal truths by starting with Descartes who said, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. If you start here, you'll never get out to, to something greater and universal. We're lost, and we live in a cynical age. We've given up now. You have your truth, you have your values and ethics, and I have mine. But the psalmist tells us something completely different. The, the, the psalmist tells us that we have, we have a norm of all norms in the scriptures. Perhaps you've been focusing on the solas of the, of the Reformation at this period in uh, in, in the year and Reformation Day. And we have, in the Word of God, we have the touchstone and the lodestone of telling us what is true and what is not. If something is according, is according to this Word, we know it's true. If, so, if a value system or philosophies or a kind of a, uh, uh, what, what, what a movie is trying to teach us is against that Word, we know that it's false by definition. By definition. The psalmist finds greater wisdom in the Word than he would find at our secular universities. He says in 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. Through your precepts I get understanding, though I, through it I hate every way. He says in 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged for I keep your precepts. If you want to be a, an educated person, if you want to know what reality is, if you want to be wise, then you need this book. 
you must have this book. This book is for children, and it's for those with advanced degrees. <clears throat> we read in 130, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. It is not just for philosophers. It is for all of us. This invitation of the psalmist is like the invitation of the Proverbs. Lady Wisdom stands and she opens her, her, her arms and she says, Come to me. If you want wisdom, come to me. Because I'll show you Christ. I'll show you Christ. <clears throat> we prayed at the beginning of our uh, preaching. We prayed in the, the words of verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Wonderful, marvelous things. This word is the Hebrew word pele. I remember that. Uh, again, if you're older, you may remember the Brazilian soccer player pele. You remember him? Uh, just an amazing soccer player. And that word pele in Hebrew means it doesn't. We, our word wonderful is, is it's kind of downgraded in English to mean good or nice. But the word literally means something that causes awe. It's like miraculous, shocking and glorious, something that makes your jaw drop. That's what this word means. <clears throat> and that's the same word that describes Jesus in, uh, in Isaiah. He says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. His name, he, his name shall be Pele. He is the miracle man. He was the miracle baby. He's the miracle man. This is the miracle book. This is a magic book. If you want to be enlightened, you must turn here. This is the place for light. If you want illumination in your depression, in your confusion, this is the place to find it. You find it here. Because this book points you towards this Jesus Christ as the great fulfillment. If you want to be amazed, this is the book for you. But not only do we find light for our darkness here, we find rescue for our weakness. Secondly, we find rescue for our weakness. The psalmist is facing difficulties of every sort. He feels his weakness. He says in 25, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life. There's a dust, over, a dust of death over his life. There's a dust of death over our lives. Everything that we touch has this, the law of entropy. Is that the second law of thermodynamics? Things run down. You paint your house, 10 years later, you got to paint it again. Right? Everything seems to run down. You build something up and then? And people that we love and care about around us, uh, they die on us and even ourselves as we move through life. We see death at work in us. And that's why the psalmist again and again, he's pleading with God for life, life. 149, give me life according to your justice. 154, uh, plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life. 157, 156 rather. Great is your mercy, O Lord, give me life. 159, consider, O Lord, how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The, the psalmist is in terrible trouble of all sorts. We read in 42 that he's being taunted. Have people taunted you? We read in 51, 
He's being derided and run down. We read that he's been smeared with lies, 69. We read that he's been persecuted falsely. Perhaps that's happened to you. Perhaps you've been slandered. People say all kinds of terrible things about you, and what can you do to defend yourself? It's impossible. That's happened to the psalmist. He talks about his affliction in 50, 67, 71, many more. He's going through troubles, and he turns to God and God's word, and he finds help in life. <clears throat> we read in 88, In your steadfast love give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. This book points us to Christ, who said of himself that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life itself. He is the life source for us. But not only do we find, as, we, as we've celebrated already in the service, not only do we find the uh, life by being forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God in an external way, we, we find that experience internally as well. He says in 32, I will run the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. What kind of freedom is it if God simply forgives your sins and leaves you in that pornographic habit that's been grabbing you by the throat for so many years. That's not much of a deliverance. You need to be delivered from that, right? And that's what the Word of God does. It, it will transform you from inside out. It will change what you love, what you seek, where you're going, what you're doing. He says in 29, Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Lord, do an internal work in me. Transform me. That's part of salvation, to transform us. He says in 29, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. God is promising not only outward help, but inward transformation. This is part of his rescue for us in our weakness. <clears throat> if I were to ask, what is the most general term that the Bible uses for God's rescue, for God's help of, of us and rescuing of us from whatever difficulty that we may face. What would you say? Salvation. The word salvation, we've kind of made it into a narrow idea, but it means deliverance. It's, it's rescue in the broadest sense. When you're close to death and you get saved from that, that's, that is salvation. That's the salvation. When you're uh, when you're about ready to lose everything and, you, and, and you, you, you escape from that, that's salvation. And what is the Hebrew word for salvation? Yes, you know it. He said I'd be preaching in English today. I am preaching in English today. But what's the Hebrew word for salvation? Yeshua. Yeshua, right? And whose name is that? Our Lord himself. His name is the very central message of the book. Salvation, deliverance. What a beautiful thing. It points us to him. It points us to him. But we not only find light for our darkness in this book, we not only find rescue for our weakness, but we find, thirdly, reliability. We find in this, in this word, we find reliability in the face of our vulnerability. Vulnerability. 
we are open to all kinds of troubles and sufferings. This is our vulnerability. The word vulnere in Latin means to wound, and a vulnus is a wound, is a blow. Whatever is, whatever is oppressing or stressing or pressing down your life, that's, that's, what your, that's where your vulnerability is. <clears throat> that's what's been going on in the psalmist's life. He says in 109, he says, I hold my life in my hands continually. In other words, there's just a, a quick step between his, his life and death. He says in 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. He says, um, <clears throat> he, he's obviously gone through all kinds of uh, social threats, physical threats, etc. As have you, as have we. Perhaps you've... Um, Perhaps people have stolen from you. Perhaps people have abused you in various ways. You're vulnerable, right? Where can we find some kind of lasting uh, foundation and reliability? We can find it in the word, which points us to Christ. He says in 89, he says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed. This is the idea. Something stable, right? 86, all your commandments are sure. Same idea. It's a good foundation. 152. Long I have known you from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. God's word is reliable. It's dependable. He says in 160. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. It's dependable and long lasting. 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Uh, 138, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, <clears throat> apart from the physical and the social troubles that you have in this world, you have a, um, you actually have an opponent, shaitan. You have a, a, a devil who is seeking nothing more than to, to, to make you grow cold to Christ and to leave the church and to turn your back on the Lord. That's his, that's, and to make sin look good to you. He is far more intelligent than any of us. And that is his, his one purpose, is to turn you away. Do you remember the, the, uh, you remember the fowler in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, right? He comes in white. He's there to turn you aside in any way he can. How are you going to resist him? You're vulnerable. You're weak. And the answer is through the word of God. It is through your word and it is through the word of God that you can find uh, help and protection in the midst of uh, your moral vulnerability. And you can learn, look to the Lord in, in your social vulnerability, your economic vulnerability. You can say to him in, one, in the words of 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. He promises you safety. He says, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. The psalmist uses the, the image of a uh, sojourner in verse 19. I appreciate that because I'm, <laughs> I am literally a sojourner. <laughs> I was at uh, Jim's house today, and I appreciate that uh, their hospitality to me, thank you very much. 
but I am a sojourner. I am dependent. I'm not self-sufficient. I had no place to stay. And I've been staying in all kinds of people's houses here this past couple months. Right? I'm dependent on them. And so it is with us. We are sojourners in this world. We are not self-sufficient. We do not follow the Disney mantra and kind of look within to find all that we need. No, we have external needs. And we ultimately need the help of God who promises to help us as we lean on him uh, and look to his, for his grace in Christ. <clears throat> Along these lines, and I don't have a, I don't have a chance to, uh, to develop it here, but the psalmist is very, he's very, uh, he comes from a, a shame honor culture and he's very concerned about the gaining of the honor and the avoiding of the shame. I'll leave this uh, for you to consider later, but he, again and again, he wants to avoid the shame and he's crying out to God to help him to avoid this, uh, this, this, sh- this shame. So fourthly, and perhaps more briefly, we find in, in, in the Word of God, we find hope for our fear. Hope for our fear. Look with me um, at 49. He says, Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. 147. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I hope in your word. He's looking to the word of God as has his confidence amidst all the anxieties and the fears that he's facing. He says in 43, my hope is in your rules. Again, it's not, it's not that he's, it's, he's not talking about the law there per se. He's talking about the word of God as, as a whole, as a whole. For you and I, fear is uh, often an enemy, and it comes, and it's like uh, uh, one of it, it sits on our shoulder, and it's always whispering to us, and it makes our, our lives unhappy and narrow, and we're off, we're like, oh, what about this, and what about that, and all the joy disappears. How can you have joy when you know all the ups and downs that life can bring you? There's only one way. It's this way. It's through Christ and His Word. It's only in this way. Have you had the experience, maybe as a child, kids, you, you've had this experience, I trust, adults, you were really anxious about something, oh, is, what's going to happen to me, I, uh, what's going to happen, and then somebody who's in the know, or someone in authority comes and they tell you, listen, this is the way it is, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, and what happens to you emotionally, you just kind of, have you felt that, you know what that's like, just kind of relax. And that's what you find in Christ who is presented to us in the scripture. You can find that release. It's not just for, it is emotional. It's not just for the moment, but it's long lasting. It becomes a kind of an undergirding for your life. You can find a true and solid hope no matter what kind of topsy-turvy turbulence that you're going through. Right? If you put your hope anywhere other than Christ anywhere other than Christ. You will be disappointed. If your hope was in your 401k, I dare say the last nine months has been devastating. You know, there goes your hope. Right? If you put your hope in any other person, that's a problem. What happens if they die? What happens if they leave you? Right? It can't be anywhere else other than Christ and in his word. By faith... If you believe, 
you can receive. This is not prosperity gospel, friends. If you believe the word as the psalmist believed it, you can have hope. You can, you can experience that hope and have that confidence in the face of your anxieties. You can throw your anxieties more and more over your shoulder. You can have comfort. The Heidelberg Catechism, which we sometimes use in our Presbyterian churches, majors on this theme of comfort, right? First question, what is your comfort? That I belong to Christ, right? The psalmist says in verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. If you believe the promise, you will have comfort. If you don't believe the promise, you will not have comfort. If you fail to believe, and this is an ongoing challenge, not just once for life, but uh, daily and, and weekly. Finally, let me draw your attention to a fifth uh, theme here, fifth thread, uh, a beautiful thread of this psalm, and that is we find happiness for our hardship. The psalmist tells us that it is God who gives happiness even in the midst of our most difficult hardships. Where does our psalm begin? Look with me, please, at verse 1. Where does he begin? He begins on this, th this theme of happiness. Baruch, blessed. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And it's a double introduction. Verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. All human beings desire happiness. Do you desire to be happy? Of course you do. That's the assumption. Where do the Psalms begin? The whole Psalter begins where? On this word. <laughs> blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Right? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Where does Jesus begin his teaching? His most famous sermon. Where does Jesus begin his teaching? On this note of happiness. Blessed, Sermon on the Mount, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, those that have found a righteousness which comes uh, from him, himself. Right? He says, the psalmist, our psalmist says in 56, this blessing has follow, fallen on me that I, that I have kept your precepts. What does it mean to be happy? Remember King Croesus? We have an expression, rich is King Croesus, king of um, Sardis. Remember him? Herodotus tells us that Solon, the Athenian statesman and philosopher, visited him. Croesus was so rich and powerful, he thought he was the happiest man in the world. <clears throat> and so he asked this visiting wise Athenian, O Solon, who is the happiest man in the world? Remember the, the story? Solomon said it was, I forgot the guy's name, he lived a life that was blessed with various blessings, and he died a glorious death in battle. And so, Croesus says, well, who's the second most happy man in the world? And Solomon mentions another fellow who had many children and other blessings, was honored while he lived, and he died again another glorious death, according to Greek values. And Croesus kept pushing, and Solon said, call no man blessed until his death, because you never know what happens. Right? The final is the question. And Croesus himself found that out when he lost everything. He lost everything. And he found out that he was not the happiest man in the world. 
he didn't have a solid foundation. If you can lose it in the tides of war, in, in an inflationary cycle, if you lose your job, if you go through a divorce, if your child turns his back on Christ, that's not happiness. Let me, let me, let me push. Let me push. If your happiness depends on your children turning out a certain way, your full final happiness, you will not be happy. Or it's, your happiness is insecure. You need a foundation of happiness that goes beyond the performance of anyone. That's not to say, as a, as a parent, of course you love your children. Of course you'll pray for them, even if they're you know, 50 and not walking with the Lord. Of course you care for them. Your heart goes out to them. Right? You grieve for them. But you can't have your happiness in that. Your happiness must be in Christ, who pointed to himself. He is the source of happiness. How, why? Why? <laughs> why is the psalmist so happy here? Because he has found out this secret. He says in, 30, in, in 68, he says, You are good. You are good. In that section on tet, you'll notice a lot of stuff about good because the word for good in Hebrew starts with a tet. In the verb, he uses the verb in 60, 65. He says, you have dealt well. That's the verb form of the same idea of, of good. You've done good to your servant, O Lord, according to your word. That's the only place is to find it in the Lord himself. This psalmist finds his, he, it's not just, oh, I like the Bible. It's, I delight in the Bible. He's finding his deepest pleasure in the Bible. This is a major theme again and again. He says, in the ways of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. He says in 24, your testimonies are my delight. He says in 70, he says, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Can you feel the joy? He's found in this word a source of joy that, that goes beyond the ups and the downs, beyond the hardships, beyond the threats to his life. He's found it. He's found this treasure that transforms him and reorients him. Have you read the Count? Have you read the Count of Monte Cristo? Have you read that book? Dumas' book? What a great book, huh? In that, we have Edmund Dantes, promising young man. He goes to the depths of the depths. He's totally unjustly punished, thrown into a terrible prison for many, many years. Loses everything. But, through some remarkable circumstances, he finds a transforming treasure, a treasure in this, this island, right? And I won't go into spoil the story, right? But that treasure transforms his life completely. And that is what you have in this word, friend. Because it points you to Christ, who spoke of himself as the center of the kingdom of God, as a treasure in a field. Christ is a, is a chest with jewels and gold in it. Christ said, if you, if you see it, then you'll sell everything you have to make sure you can get that field so that you can get that treasure. That treasure transforms. Jesus presents himself as a pearl a particularly valuable large pearl. It's worth liquidating all your other assets. Just to have him is to have everything. Brothers, sisters, friends, if you have Christ, 
you have everything. If you miss Christ, you miss everything. Let me make that an invitation. If you haven't had Christ, if you haven't had Christ as your treasure, take him as your treasure now. Now is the time. Now is the day. This is the, this is the period, whether you're young or old. Christ offers himself to you as a treasure. Will you believe in him? Will you call out to him? Will you receive him? Will you rest your soul on him and depend on him as your happiness, as your source of reconciliation with God, as your great mediator, as your savior? He is salvation. His name is Yeshua. That's his Hebrew name. We call him Jesus. That comes from the Greek. Will you take him as your Yeshua? If you do that, if you set your faith in him, then you can have happiness, right? That's what we're celebrating here. You are my all in all, Lord Jesus. You are my bread. You are more important to me than the bread that I eat, than the, than the drink that sustains my life. You are my all in all. All my happiness is caught up in you, not in these other things. What a wonderful thing. So that's what this psalmist has discovered. He uses this image of money again and again. In 35... Your word is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. 72, 127. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. 162. I rejoice in your word like one who finds great spoil. Let me ask you a question. Would you worry about your, the bills at the end of the month if, if you know that you were going to receive a, a $5 million inheritance next year? You wouldn't sweat the small stuff because you knew you had this solid inheritance. And that's what you have in Christ. You have an inheritance. The psalmist says in 111, your testimonies are my heritage. They're his inheritance forever. They are the joy of my heart. God offers you. He promises you. He seals to you, even to your five senses. Please smell what you're drinking. Please smell what you're eating. Taste it. Savor it. This is the gospel presented to your whole person, to your eyes. I'm presenting the gospel to your ears. This is the gospel for your taste buds. But the point is, Christ is your, is your inheritance. If you have him, you have a multi-million dollar inheritance that will enable you to face everything, everything, every setback every disappointment, every betrayal, every downturn, every physical suffering as we move on into uh, our older years, which is terribly difficult. You will find Christ sufficient for all these things. Does this psalm promise you an easy life? Of course not. But you'll find that Christ is sufficient. You'll find Christ in his word is light for our darkness, rescue for our weakness, reliability for our vulnerability, hope for our fear, and happiness for our hardship. These are what we find in the Word. And let me encourage you, please, this afternoon, tonight, this week, please sit down, read through the whole thing. Read through the whole thing. There's so much more here that I can't possibly unpack. But let me ask one final question in conclusion, and that is, how do we respond then? How do we respond? If these are the delights that Scripture offers us, as it shows us Christ. We respond then in love. In love. 
we human beings, whatever we see that is lovely, we love it. We can't help but love it and delight in it. And as you see Christ, as you see him here, crucified for you, as you see him bleeding on the cross, as you think of what he's done for you, in coming down from the joys of heaven, he who is the word of God, always oh, say, oh, that's nice. But think of that for a second. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word. Wycliffe is all about crossing cultural and language barriers to bring the word of God to people who don't have it. But the ultimate crossing of cultural and language barrier is, is Christ himself. He who came from heaven on high, and he became understandable to us, human, touchable. He's the word for us that gives us life. Brothers and sisters, as you see him in, your, in his beauty, then let your heart come out to him in love. In love, to love him who loved you. And then that love flows out to those around you that you're called to serve. Each of you have multiple callings as children, as parents, as employees, as employers, as leaders in the church, as servants. We're called to love one another out of that sense of loving him and being caught up in just how beautiful and lovable, lovely that he is. What a beautiful thing this is. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the words of the psalmist, and we say with the psalmist, the Lord is our portion. We promise to keep your words. We thank you, Lord, for the, the gospel news that we've heard from the beginning of this service, that we've, that we've reiterated in our psalms and songs. We've heard in the preaching, and we're, we're seeing now in the sacrament, that Christ is for us. We thank you that Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so we pray that through faith in Christ, more and more, we might experience joy in the Holy Ghost, that we might experience peace of conscience, that we might experience an increase in grace. Whatever addictions, whatever sins that we continue to struggle with and that continue to, to stumble us, we ask for victory. And we pray, Lord, that you'd grant us uh, a sense of uh, joy and confidence and in, in the reliability of your word as we go forward. We pray for those who are being tempted by the lies of, of our world. I guess that's all of us, Lord, but those particularly who are being tempted in this way or that, help them, Lord, and may your word be a comfort and a, and a sustaining foundation to them uh, at this time. And may we all experience more and more in life the true happiness that can only come through belief in your word, through faith uh, in Christ. This we ask with the forgiveness of our sins in thanksgiving, in Jesus' name.